Let's uh, stand tonight. We're going to read from Psalm 23 together. And I love this psalm. A lot of us know it. We, maybe this is one of our favorites. And, uh, you know, I know that this is a metaphor. I recognize that. I know it's poetry. But it says something of God's amazing love, care, protection, and provision. And I love it. Let's read it together, Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Lord, I thank you. What a beautiful, beautiful picture of your gracious care for us. A shepherd caring for sheep. Lord, we are like sheep. We're, we're defenseless apart from you. And Lord, we make terrible decisions apart from you. So I pray tonight that you would open our hearts and minds. We've focused on this as we broke bread, Lord. We pray that your presence would be so real to each of us that we would hear your voice speaking into our innermost being. And Lord, as your word declares to us, if we hear your voice, help us not to harden our hearts, not to close off from you, to be open, Lord, to what you're going to say to us, O God, that we would be responsive to you. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name and God's people said, amen. You may be seated. I don't know if this was uh, the story of People's Church in Toronto. It's a great missionary church. But uh, in, the, in the early 1890s, the church was dedicated and open, and there was a missions conference there. And a very great uh, missionary speaker, a Canadian by the name of A.J. Gordon, came, and he delivered a series of lectures on the Holy Spirit and, it, and his impact in the realm of missions. And so at that time a young pastor by the name of Roland Bingham was actually sitting in attendance. And as he was listening to these lectures, he was deeply moved, and he prayed this prayer. He said, Lord, would you send me to some distant part of the world that people there have not been exposed to your wonderful gospel, have not heard your name. Lord, I'd like to go there. Well, he went on with his pastorate. It was nearby in Toronto in the country somewhere. Months passed, no clear answer to prayer. Finally, one day, he happened to speak to a small meeting inside the city of Toronto where he was invited to the home of an elderly woman. She was a widow, and her son had gone off on a missions trip, and so she wanted to tell him about this. Somehow, she connected with him. And so he went to lunch at her home, and during that time, she told about her son, Walter, who had been, you know, literally called by God to go and take the gospel to a very needy part of the world, which was very similar to Roland's prayer. And she said, when Walter was praying and seeking God, he was poring over maps and statistics, and one area of Africa fell on his heart. And it was almost totally without a Christian witness. And so from coast to coast, south of the Sahara Desert, north of the great rainforest, there was a population belt known in the 1890s as the Sudan. And so Roland Bingham left Mrs. Gown, and he knew in his heart where God was now speaking to him, where he needed to go, and who he needed to connect with. So 
Eventually, he and a couple of other young men decided to go to the Sudan. They got there. They got to the coast. And just before they were to go inland, which very few missionaries were doing, he contracted malaria. And how many know that's a pretty tough situation? So he had to stay behind because it almost cost him his life. He's trying to recover. The other two young men went inside inland. And so he decided to set up a base for this operations, this ministry. And while they were ministering, these two other two young men, both of them died of malaria within a year. A very heart-rending beginning. Roland Bingham returned to North America to find additional help. Five years later, he returned to the Sudan, accompanied by another two young companions. And once again, he contracted malaria, had to leave the interior, went back to recuperate. The other two young guys were t- so disillusioned, it was so difficult, they just gave up and left. Seven years after he had set out to Africa, you know, discouraged, he came back to Toronto, met with Mrs. Gowan. By this time, her son Walter had passed away, he had died. Uh, and she said to him, in response to her son's death, and it's pretty powerful, she said, I would rather have had Walter to go to the Sudan and die there all alone than to have him home disobeying our Lord. That's quite a statement by a mom who's, you know, just lost her son. And she meant it, you know. And and so Bingham was equally determined to obey regardless of what it would cost him, even if he would die. So within the next seven years, he toiled there. They tried to establish a mission. There were no conversions. Nobody was responding to the gospel. Now he's invested 14 years of his life, no response to what he's doing. How many go, I'd be a little discouraged by that. Anybody might be a little discouraged by that? But he just continued to persevere. And finally, when he died in 1943, he left an organization called the Sudan Interior Missions, which is a very well-known missions organization. Numerically, one of the largest in Africa. National churches are growing, and, and it's still growing from West Africa to Ethiopia, despite some of the challenges that this early ministry encountered, these churches today represent a powerful witness to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, you know, you ask yourself, how did this all come about? Well, obviously, it was a young person hearing the call of God. A young man who was trained for ministry, believed God had called him to bring the gospel to people that were, hadn't heard the message before, willing to you know, be obedient to that call and willing to give his life for it because of the work of the Holy Spirit in his life. And so I want to take a look a little bit today on that empowered life. I mean, how many say after 14 years, I don't know if I could have handled that kind of difficulty and that kind of pressure. That would have been difficult, right? And yet... There was something sustaining Roland as he was ministering in West Africa there. So I want to look at what does the life empowered by the Spirit look like. And so I've been listening here in my, uh, you know, I, I work out in my home usually. I, have, I also work out at a gym, but I work out at home and I listen to lectures. And I'm listening to a series of lectures by a New Testament scholar right now. And it's entitled, The Experience of the Divine. This is a New Testament scholar by the name of Luke Timothy Johnson. And he shared something the other day that I, I was really struck with. And I, I've been running this thing in my mind. And then we had these three days of prayer and fasting. How many here, you actually came to one of those nights? Wasn't that amazing? You know, we had over 200 people three nights in a row seeking God. And, and uh, man, I'll tell you, it was just powerful. Wednesday night, we worshiped God. It's probably the most dynamic worship this church has ever experienced. If you weren't here that Wednesday night, I'm so sorry you missed it. Uh, But I believe God is doing something in our midst. But it all comes back to uh, 
something that we need to understand about Christianity. Christianity is not just a proposition of what we believe. In other words, it's not just the certain truths that make us a Christian. And Luke Timothy Johnson says it this way, Some scholars are reluctant to acknowledge the validity of religious experience in general, much less the religious experience that was the beginning of Christianity. But I want, I want you to think about this for a minute. How absolutely incredible was it to have a worldwide movement started when a backward, really, a backward province sustaining an itinerant minister, preaching a message that was really radical compared to what his contemporaries were saying. He was actually claiming to be God in the flesh, and he was tried and crucified and never wrote a book had 12 very ordinary followers, one who betrayed him, and that became the origin of a worldwide movement. Now, you've got to think about that. How audacious is that? Unless that person was who he said he was, that he was actually God who became a man and revealed his divinity, his deity, his godness through the life he lived, but also in the fact that when he left, this is the important part, and he said it in the upper room discourse, that I, it's necessary that I leave in order for the Holy Spirit to come. And let's face it, until the Holy Spirit came, the early disciples were not doing very well. How many can say that's the truth? Man, they were afraid. They were up in the upper room for fear of the Jews. They, uh, you know, were bickering amongst themselves. There was all kinds of problems. They were divided and discouraged. And then Jesus said to them, after coming back from the dead, he spoke to them and said, I want you to wait in Jerusalem until you are endued from power from on high. And as they were waiting on that 50th day after the Passover celebration, the day of Pentecost, the Spirit of God came on this group of people, and now they were empowered by the Spirit. And the same people who you know, didn't seem to be making much of a difference now were absolutely on fire. They were courageous As a matter of fact, when the religious establishment, the parliament of their community, the Sanhedrin, brought Peter and John up before them, it says they recognized that these were unlearned men, but they were speaking with such confidence and knowledge and authority that they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But there was something even distinctly beyond that, that they were now experiencing the life of the Spirit, and they were speaking with absolute authority. In other words, these individuals had an experience with the third person of the Trinity called the Holy Spirit, who the work of the Spirit is to make Christ known to us. The work of the Holy Spirit today is to reveal Christ in our lives. The work of the Holy Spirit today is to give you and I a validating experience so that we're not just walking around having an intellectual understanding of Christianity, but we're experiencing the life of Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. These first Christians made claims about their significance that are out of proportion to their actual situation in the world. How many know that was the truth? I mean, they were basically saying that the one that they were worshiping was Caesar. I mean, that was Lord. He was sovereign Lord. Caesar was saying he was Lord. He was God. But Jesus claimed, you know, claimed, I'm God. And these ordinary people were proclaiming that message. And these claims were based on other claims concerning their personal, personal, sorry, and current experience. They were having an experience with God. That's an amazing thing. They were saved. They were transformed. They were empowered. And folks, if we're going to have a life change, we have to experience the power of the Holy Spirit. We really do. It's so critical. You know, 
This claim to the experience of power is connected to a central symbol and a basic conviction. And the central symbol is that of the Holy Spirit. They were touched by a personal, transcendent, transforming energy that came from God and not from themselves. They were being made alive by the Spirit of God. This is what was changing their life. Um, So the work of the Holy Spirit uh, is experiential in nature. It's not just a dry confession, but an encounter with God who came in the person of Jesus, who lived, performed miracles, was unjustly tried, was crucified, was raised from the dead through the power of the Holy Spirit. And... You know, I was so struck here one of the nights when we were praying. We had young people, and we were all broken into small groups, and one of our young people prayed a prayer that really got me moving down a track. And they basically prayed this beautiful prayer. They said, Lord, many of us young people have never experienced God, and we doubt that he exists. And for those people, Lord, I'm praying now that they'll experience your presence. And I realized, you know, there's people that grew up in the church. There's people that they've had this experience all of their life. And and since they've had a kind of a social experience. They've grown up. They've heard the gospel. But they've never had a personal encounter with God. Listen, we all need a personal experience with God. And that's what I want to focus our thoughts on here today. The Christian life, uh, well, this empowered life, will actually help us maintain balance in this life too. And I'm going to talk about how we can get, you know, we can just become experientially driven, and that creates problems as well. And we'll look at that in a few minutes. But the Christian life is not one that problems are absent from. How many know that's true? Jesus never said, when you become a Christian, all your days of problems are over. He never said that. As a matter of fact, he said, in the world, you will have problems. He uses a fancy word, you know, that translates tribulation. You know, how many go, I don't like tribulation. I do not like trials. I do not like trouble. I do not want problems, right? We try to avoid those things. And yet Jesus says in the world, you're going to have those things, but be of good cheer. I've overcome this world. And so the power of the gospel is not that, you know, we're not going to have troubles. The power of the gospel, the power of this life is that we have a power greater than our troubles. That's the beauty of the Christian life. And the book of Ephesians, which we're going to look at tonight, and I want you to turn there. We're going to look at chapter 5. We're going to look at a few verses. It deals with some of the very significant issues, not only facing first century believers, but I believe it's the same problems that you and I are relating to today. How many can on- honestly say that we're dealing with issues of maintaining healthy relationships? Any, is, that, is that very contemporary, trying to maintain healthy relationships? Anybody can relate to that? Is that, is, that a, is that something that we can relate to in 2016 that we're trying to develop and maintain healthy relationships in our home, in our workplace, hmm? in church life? Is that relevant? Of course it's relevant. You know, or it speaks to how to live a holy life in an unholy world. Uh, you know, when we think about holiness, I, I love this word because I think of another word that equally makes sense to us. Because we're, we're living in a time when we're not just talking about theological terms. I think we've kind of abandoned theological terms as a culture. Don't you think that's true? We really have. But how about the, you know, we, use, we talk in psychological terms. How many here we want to talk about wholeness? W-H-O-L-E. But the word holiness and wholeness are, are compatible synonymous, synonymous terms. You and I can never be whole, W-H-O-L-E, until we're holy. In other words, we're never going to experience this integration of our personhood. We're never going to become fully humanized until we become the author of the one who created humanity in the begin with, and that's God himself. We need to have that experience with him. It speaks in how we can overcome specific strongholds of sin in our lives, another word that we don't use today. We use words like addiction and dysfunction. Isn't that true? 
You don't hear people talk about sin. You hear people talk about, you know, this dysfunctional situation or this addicted situation. But let me explain something to you. You know, sin is simply, you know, a power. And what happens when we sin, we dehumanize ourselves. We're marring the image of God in our lives. And this power becomes greater than us. And so in psychological terms, we become addicted. And there's a lot of people battling compulsions, addictions, right? They're broken. That's just what sin is all about. And God has come to address those issues in our life, however you frame it, however you label it. And so everything this book is talking about is absolutely relevant to where we're living in this time in our lives. And really, at the end of it, you know, the work of God's Spirit is to produce things like joy, hope, peace, self-control, perseverance, and humility. How many think those are kind of beautiful aspects of life? Isn't that great? That's the, that's the effect of the Holy Spirit at work in our lives. As we're yielding to him, he's producing these beautiful qualities in our lives. And I love these qualities. And may they increase in all of our lives. So now we're at chapter 5. I'm just bringing us up to speed here. We're in chapter 5, verse 15. And here we're going to look at this empowerment that the Holy Spirit brings. Look what it says in verse 15. He says, Be very careful then how you live not as unwise, but as wise. Now, I'm, I'm, happening, I'm writing a, a major paper right now on, from the wisdom literature, which is you know, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. That's wisdom literature. And you know, how many know that the beginning of wisdom is what? It's the fear of the Lord. That's how the Hebrew sages saw it. They, the writers saw that wisdom only begins when we, when we have a relationship with God. And I'm actually writing a paper to compare the wisdom of the ancient Near Eastern peoples, the similarities and the differences between that and them and the Hebrew people. Very fascinating. The Hebrew people, you know, actually borrow some of the Proverbs of other parts of the world. But in this whole concept, they recognize that you and I will never, ever really tap into wisdom until we know God. They understood that. As a matter of fact, you and I, one of the reasons why we need God in our lives is because we're not wise enough to live life skillfully. We don't have enough observational power. We don't have enough experience in our lives. We don't, you know, and no matter how many things people tell us, we're not equipped to actually fully engage life successfully. And so that's why Proverbs 3, 5 says we have to trust in God with all of our heart and not to what? Lean to our own understanding. See, because we have a limited amount of understanding. We'll never have enough understanding to successfully navigate this life. That's why we have to learn how to trust God. Then it goes on to say, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Well, the days have always been evil. How many know that there have always been problems with evil in our world? I mean, you don't have to go very far. You open up the internet, you see the news, you know, you read the newspaper, you watch it on the television, the news stories. What's it about? It's amazing how corrupt and evil we really are as human beings. Isn't it shocking? Is anybody shocked by that? You know, sometimes it's disgusting. It's perversion. It's, uh, it's terrible. And we go, why is this happening? And, you know, if I, was a, if I was a person out there, I would be asking the question, do you think education is going to solve all of our problems? This is one of the most educated times, especially in North America. We're still dealing with evil. You know, education is not going to help people overcome evil. Oh, we just need more money. You know, if we just change the social environment, people will change. Listen, I see, you know, sometimes the people who are the most wealthy are the most evil. So that's not the answer. 
There's something more fundamentally flawed inside of the human uh, person than just that. Then it says, therefore, do not be foolish. The word foolish is actually dealing with moral perversion or moral, uh, a lack of real morality. And that's true. We're, you know, foolishness is a deficiency. It's not like people are stupid. It's just that they're, they're morally deficient. And it says, but understanding what the Lord's will is. And then here's my text. Do not be drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your hearts to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so I want to focus in on just two very essential elements to living out this empowered Christian life. And I think they're critical to maintaining a balance in this life. And the first one is simply, it, it must be experiential in nature. We must have an encounter with God, the Holy Spirit. That's what we need. That's one of our greatest needs in our culture today, that we would meet God. It would change our lives. You know, if when you look at a guy like Saul, who was totally transformed and he later became Paul, how many know you just can't persuade somebody that's that stuck in a track, and you think you're going to win them over? You, don't, I, you know, I've discovered something with people. Most people are locked in to their particular point of view. What they need is an encounter with the Holy Spirit. How many say that's true? That's exactly what people need. You know? So Christianity, I've already said it, is not just mentally assenting to the correct teaching. It's more than that, folks. It's an encounter with the living Lord. And that's what we need. And people in our culture need to encounter and experience God in their life. That's the great need. Here in our text, we're commanded to live a life filled with the Spirit. It says, be filled with the Spirit. Now, you know that the original language that this was written in was not English. It's Greek. And the text is really basically, in the Greek language, it's, it's a continuous tense. And so it's telling us, be continuously filled with the Spirit. And this is an imperative. And in grammar, you know, I had to learn a little grammar. I have to be refreshed about grammar. An imperative means it's a command. And so we're being commanded by God to be continuously filled with the Spirit. Is that an interesting command? He's commanding us to be continuously filled with the Spirit. And then he goes on here to describe its impact on our lives. And he starts out in a very unusual fashion. He begins by you know, speaking of, of another experience that's an antithetical or an opposite experience of being filled with the Spirit. And so he talks about drunkenness as, an ex, as a condition of an altered experience. How many know that that's what happens when people get inebriated, when they get drunk? They're, having, they're, they're literally having an experience in their life. Do you know that's true? They're being altered. Does anybody know that? Yeah. Now let's read it again. It says, do not get drunk on wine. Now, you know, we think of wine... You know, here's the literalist. There's people that, that, that read the Bible that literally say, it's okay to get drunk on beer. It doesn't say that. I'm going, you know, totally missing the point, you know. So I'm going to help us out. The idea here is that we're not to be altered by any chemical. That includes street drugs, prescription drugs, alcohol of any form. It's because it says don't get drunk. Because wine was an accepted commodity in the ancient world. People drank wine. Water was actually pretty uh, polluted. And a lot of people got sick on it. But let me just say, it says, don't get drunk on wine. Why? Because it leads to 
debauchery. And let me, let me explain something. I grew up in an alcoholic home, so I have a little understanding of this. And I can't say that I've never, not once in my life, ever been inebriated. I have been. I'm not proud of it. I have been. And let me explain what happens when you're inebriated. And some of you understand what I'm going to talk about. This is, what happens is it lowers your inhibitions, number one. It causes you to make terrible decisions. Anybody figured that out? And you know what's really sad about getting drunk on any sort of chemical? All it takes is one time you can have such a negative experience. How many people who have gotten behind the wheel of a car when they're drunk have literally altered the lives, their lives and the lives of other people? Well, it won't happen to me. It's happening to people all the time. We read about it all the time. And, you know, maybe people aren't always getting killed, but a lot of those accidents, people's lives are forever changed. They're being dismembered. You know, they lose a limb. Their whole life has been altered by one bad decision. Isn't that true? Hey, listen, that's not just a car accident. How many bad decisions have people made? Got pregnant. I, we could just go down. I could go down a list and talk about some of the things people have done while they were, you know, inebriated. Some people don't even remember what they did. I remember we had a man in our church. He was a convicted murderer. You guys don't know this, but I did. And he had a, he was, you know, he had a, in his probation, he could only travel 50 miles from where he lived. He had to go see his probation officer. And one of the things he did was he went into high schools and talked about how he killed this person. You know what he said to these young people? He said, this was the kind of kid I was. I was always in trouble. I was, you know, abusing drugs and alcohol. But he said, I was not a nice person. I'd be nice to people until I got what I wanted, and then I would abuse them. And he would just go on and talk like this to these young high school students. I know because I went to hear him. He said, Pastor, come and hear what, my story. And he said, the day that I killed this person, I don't even remember it. I was so inebriated, I had blacked out. I went in there to steal money from a, a lady that was an older woman who went in and she must have saw him and he killed her. Doesn't he remember it? That's tragic. This is a true story, folks. You know, his life was forever changed. Her life obviously came to an end. Many other people's lives were affected in a negative way. I think we need to understand that when we, when we disobey God's word, it has an incredible impact, not only on ourselves, but on the lives of people around us. But you go, I'm addicted. Yeah, but there's a power greater than your addiction. It's the power of the living Holy Spirit. He can break us of those addictions. And I'm gonna declare that to you tonight because I've seen it, I've witnessed it. I've seen people who have been totally delivered from the addiction of alcohol and of drugs. I've witnessed it. It goes on to say, which leads to debauchery. So what is debauchery? It's extreme indulgence of a person's appetite. One translator interprets the Greek word asotia as excess. Kenneth Weiss describes it as nothing of saving quality about it, but rather a destructive one. Uh, the word, as it's generally used, expresses the idea of an abandoned, debauched, profligate life. It's a life that is utterly shame, shameful, immoral, and recklessly extra, reckless in its, in its extravagance. You know, Jesus describes this life in the story of the prodigal, remember? That's the kind of life he was leading. It is a dehumanizing life, and it's wasting and squandering God's God-given talents in our life. Our, our minds, our, our ability to learn, we're destroying all kinds of things that God has put into our lives. And the devil, you know, the Bible says has come to steal, kill, and to destroy. And this is how he does it. He causes us to get addicted to different things in our lives. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a medical doctor before he was a pastor, says, take up any book on pharmacology, 
which is the study of uh, drugs. And look up alcohol, and you'll always find that it's classified among the depressants. It's a depressant. And how many people say, yeah, I was, I was so depressed, I decided to have a drink. I'm going, okay, you're depressed, you're taking another depressant. Is that, is that making any sense? How many go, that's not rational, Pastor? I go, I know, but that's what sin does. It creates an irrational thinking pattern. You know, he goes on to say it's not a stimulus. What alcohol does is this. It knocks out those higher centers so that the more primitive elements in the brain come up and take control, and a person feels temporarily better. They have lost their sense of fear. They have lost their discrimination. They have lost their power to make assessments. Alcohol merely knocks out his higher centers and releases the more instinctive primal elements, but the person believes that they're actually being stimulated. Now, how many go, that's absolutely crazy? You're taking a depressant, but you feel stimulated. What is that? It's called self-deception. People live in a state of self-deception. What is really true of that person is that they've become more of an animal. Their control over themselves have been diminished. There's no longer... Self-control. By the way, what is one of the fruit of the Spirit? Self-control. And so we're diminishing self-control. So now, having said all of that, then he places the work of the Holy Spirit in opposition to getting drunk. He says this is the opposite of that. Rather than being drunk and leading to this kind of a life, this is what needs to happen. Every day we should be continuously filled with the Spirit. We can be, by the way, the Holy Spirit, you know what it is? The fruit of the Spirit is love. That love would flow into our lives, that joy, peace, wow, all these beautiful things flowing into our lives. We must avail ourselves of God's Spirit in our lives to be and to do what God wants us to be and to do. I, I really believe that. Uh, and then it says, uh, let me close with this, Christianity actually gives a person a new life, a new beginning. It is not merely negative, mechanical sort of morality that dulls the soul and robs it of life and vitality. You know, a lot of times Christianity is presented as a list of do's and don'ts. Totally missing the point. You're totally missing what it's all about. Actually, what it does, and I love his next line, he says this, the apostle, I say by using this comparison, and he's comparing being drunk versus being filled with the Spirit, he says, thunders at us this tremendous fact that the Christian life is not a negative life, a mere absence of evil and sin. Rather, Christianity is a stimulating, exhilarating, and thrilling life. Uh, let me just go back and read that last line again one more time. It says, it is a stimulating, exhilarating, and thrilling life. How many of you here go, yeah, I got it. I, I'm living it. And some of us are going, I have no idea what you're talking about. I'm just, I'm not, there's nothing exciting, stimulating, exhilarating about my life. That's because, listen carefully, we need an experience of the Holy Spirit. Hang on to this. We're going to pray for you tonight. I believe God wants to give you that life. I believe God wants to give you an experience in the Holy Spirit. I believe God wants to change your life. I believe God wants to deliver you from the power of sin. He wants you to experience the power of the living Christ. He wants to transform you. He's not here to condemn us. Even though I'm pointing these things out, some of you say, I feel kind of condemned by this. Listen, that's not the intent. The intent is to tell you there's a life better than the life you're living. And it's more exciting. And, it, it, and it's a power greater than the power that used to alter your life. There's a power that's greater that will alter it to become more like God. Well, I like that. So let me move on to point number two in the empowered life. It's cognitive in nature. Some of you go, what does that mean, Pastor? It means that it gives you understanding. Do you know the moment you have an experience, the next thing you want is understanding? 
It's really fascinating. And, and the Christian life is not an irrational life. You know, I, this culture is so funny. They think that because you're a Christian, you have to be stupid. I, I'm serious. I've been around people. You know, it's like if you tell them they're, you're a Christian, they think you're an idiot. You know, how in the world can you guys believe this stuff? It's almost like they put faith at opposite towards, you know, like knowledge. And I'm going, they see, you know, reason and faith as being conflicted. Do you know what happens? Reason has to be subservient to faith. And I'll tell you why. Because if you're just trusting in human reason, it'll come to an end. It's very limiting. But you know what happens? When you have real faith, it all of a sudden creates higher levels of rationality. Some of the greatest thinkers that have lived in the last 2,000 years have been Christians. You, want, you, you know, just start studying. You do some real studying of, of human history, European history. Anyways, I don't, I don't know all the history, but I know European, North American history. And what you're going to discover, some of the more brilliant thinkers have been Christians. It's going to blow your mind. A lot of the great scientists have been Christians. It's very interesting, you know. So... What I notice in the scripture is this, this kind of, and this, there's this kind of a balance that the Bible brings to us. Listen to what Jesus says to the woman at the well of Samaria. He said, you're going to worship, the ones that are going to worship God correctly, you have to worship God in what? In spirit. That's experience, okay? That's what I've been talking about, point number one. But he doesn't stop there. He doesn't say, we have to worship God in spirit. What else does Jesus say in that, that text in John 4.24? You must worship God in spirit and in truth. There is understanding that is needed. Listen to what Peter says. You must grow in grace, that's experience, and in knowledge. Wow. And so when we only focus on the experiential side, and we have no knowledge, and we reject understanding, we become fanatical, excessive. We embrace emotionalism, It's not that God's against emotion, but we let our emotions drive us and we become irrational. And all of a sudden we do stupid things. That's not even what God is asking us to do. That's a problem. But on the other hand, if I'm only walking with understanding and I know all the doctrines of the Bible and I can articulate and argue them very well, but I have no experience, I am absolutely dried up. I can be so absolutely legalistic and judgmental, and so critical, I'm just pointing out what I see, the two extremes. And they're both wrong. And you need the experience with the understanding. It goes together. As a matter of fact, uh, there's a growth in our knowledge of and about God and his ways. Listen, Paul warns us. He says, don't be unwise, but be wise. Don't be foolish. Understand what the will of the Lord is. Isn't that amazing? And you know what happens when you and I actually have an experience with God, the first thing we want to discover is what's going on. We want understanding. You know, I like Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He's one of the guys that I read a lot, especially when I was a newer Christian and early, early was my, and my pastorate. And he said this, history proves that a desire for education always follows a spiritual revival and an awakening. It's the truth. He says, it happened at the Reformation, it happened in the Puritan Awakening, it happened in still more striking manner after the Evangelical Awakening of 200 years ago. Now, he died in the 1980s, this, this pastor. And he said this, 
And now he's from London, right? He's, he's a Welshman. He's pastoring in London, one of the great churches there. And he said there were those besought and drunken miners and others in the Midlands and in the north and around about Bristol. Suddenly they were converted by the power of the Holy Spirit and they began to clamor for schools and wanted to be able to read. The Holy Spirit stimulates the mind. And you go, well, yeah, I don't know, Pastor. You're pulling this history stuff on us. Well, let me pull you the Bible. You know, what happened on the day of Pentecost? The Spirit of God came on and began to speak in other tongues. That's something that's absolutely irrational. You know, it was a high degree of experience. And then we read this in the same chapter. It says, you know, afterwards they, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. What was the first thing they devoted themselves to? Teaching. They wanted to understand. Isn't that amazing? You know, the moment I have a true encounter with God... I have a hunger for God's word. You know, I've done a lot of studying on revival, more than most people, because I wrote my, do- my dissertation as my doctoral degree. I wrote a 300-page book on revival. And this is what I'll tell you about revival. I know what it looks like because I've studied it. I've experienced it in a small measure. I've been praying it for it for over 20 years. And I'll tell you what, is, what the characteristics are. First sign of a revival, deep conviction of sin. First sign. Second sign of revival, an incredible hunger for the word of God. Third sign of revival, people are concerned about other people and their, their, their love levels go up and all of a sudden you can't tell them what to, you know, they want to share their fate with other people. It changes their whole inner being and it changes their whole desire and it changes their whole focus. They are only concerned now about bringing glory to God and doing his will. This is really exciting, isn't it? I kind of like this stuff, you know. But let me just close with these, these thoughts. So what happens when we have this desire to grow in our understanding? Look, what, look how he pa- unpacks it here in verses 19 to 21. So now he says this. When we are full of the Spirit, we start talking differently. Well, what do you mean we talk differently, Pastor? I call it Spirit-filled speaking. Listen to what it says here. It says, Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord. Do you know what? I can tell where your heart is at if I spend a day with you. And I don't tell you I'm doing this. I can start talking to you, and eventually, as I listen to you talk to me all day long, and I ask questions, what you tell me tells me what's in your heart. Because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Now, let's say you're really into your kids. You're going to tell me about your kids. If you're into your grandkids, I'm going to hear about your grandkids. If you're into sports, I'm going to hear about sports. If you're into cars, I'm going to hear about cars. That's the way we are. If you're into God and the Bible, I'm going to hear about God and the Bible. You're going to tell me what you're about. You're speaking. This is the other thing I notice. People who are full of the Spirit, they're full of joy. People who are full of the Spirit, they have a song. They're walking around singing. They're walking around humming. You know, what I really found fascinating, and this is so amazing to me, a lot of the, you know, the African Americans that were taken to North America and brought into slavery, and they came to know Jesus, you know, how they, you know how they survived that brutal, atrocious depreciation and dehumanizing experience? Is they were full of the Spirit, and they began to sing in the fields, and they began worshiping God. That's what sustained them through their crisis. They had a song in their heart. You know, some of us, we don't have a song in our heart. That tells me something about how, what the level of the Holy Spirit is. I can tell where I'm at based on another quality. Look what it says here. The second one is we have an attitude of gratitude. You know, if we walk around and we're grumpy and complaining all the time, we're frustrated about life and we're negative, we're not full of the Spirit. 
You say, how do you know that, Pastor? Listen to what it says here. It says, uh, always giving thanks. Always giving thanks. Paul says to the Philippians, rejoice in the Lord. Again, I say rejoice. We should be the happiest people. We should be the most thankful people. Listen to what Paul writes to the Thessalonians. He says, be joyful always. Pray continuously and give thanks in all circumstances. Now, he doesn't say give thanks for all circumstances. There's a lot of terrible things that happen to us. I'm not giving thanks for that. But I'm giving thanks in, in spite of that. See, it says give thanks in all circumstances. In other words, I can be thankful because I know who's in control of the circumstances. I know that God is allowing this to happen, and there's a purpose for it. And if I really start thinking about it, he's going to work good from this circumstance. So I can begin to thank him. I can extol the Lord at all times. His praise can continuously be in my mouth. Why? Because that's what happens when I'm full of the Spirit. But if I'm not full of the Spirit, all I'm going to do is walk around grumbling, complaining, grumbling, complaining. Right? What happened to the grumblers and complainers in the book of Numbers? They didn't get into the promised land. I read the Bible carefully. The next one is living a life of mutual submission. Whoa. You know, this is fascinating. John Stott, who was a great pastor, he said this. It says, living a life in submission, not because, you know, we like Donald Trump. You know, that's what's happening in the state. I can just tell where some people are at. You know, regardless of who gets elected, we have to live in submission to our leaders. You know, think about the early leaders that these guys had. You know, most of these guys were writing in the reign of Nero. Nero was an insane person. They were telling him, submit to your leader. What? But God allowed that person to come into power. You know, why does God let some leaders, regardless of your take on Trump or Clinton, I don't, I don't really care to hear about what your take is. Really, it's, not, it's, not, it's immaterial, really. God's still in control. Regardless who got elected in the United States, regardless who's elected in Alberta, regardless of who's elected in Ottawa, listen, God is greater than these leaders, but we have to submit out of a respect for Christ. And when you have a culture that's in anarchy and in rebellion against its leaders, you have bigger problems. Bigger problems. And what it tells me is these people are not submitted to God. That's really what the issue is. We don't want to hear this, Pastor. You know, this is not an imperative, but rather a participle dependent on the command of being filled with the Spirit. In other words, you can only live a life of mutual submission when you're filled with the Spirit. And when you and I cannot submit to other people, it's because we're not filled with the Spirit. How is that? I didn't want to hear that. That's biblical. That's biblical. We have to have understanding. Such are the wholesome results of the fullness of the Holy Spirit. They're all concerned with relationships. Isn't this amazing? We are filled with the Spirit. We shall be harmoniously relating both to God. We'll be worshiping Him with joy and thanksgiving and to each other, speaking and submitting to one another. Isn't that beautiful? How many goes, that's beautiful. That's community. Wow. And we shouldn't be surprised by that. In brief, Spirit-filled believers love God and love each other, which is hardly surprising since the first fruit of the Spirit is love. Now we're full of the Spirit. You know when somebody's full of the Spirit? Because they love people. You should just be loving people. Okay, let me close now. Be filled is not a tentative proposal, John Stott writes. It's an authoritative command. We have no more liberty to avoid this responsibility than the many others which are surrounded in the book of Ephesians. To be filled with the Spirit 
is obligatory, not optional. In other words, if you're not filled with the Spirit, you're disobeying God. How's that? Oh, I don't like that, Pastor. I'm just telling you what is the truth. You know, I don't really want to hear the truth. I'm just telling you, we need to be full of the Spirit. How's that? We're going to close with that. See, how do I get filled with the Spirit? Oh, I'm glad you asked. We need to ask. Simple as that. Let's stand. Here's what we're going to do tonight, and we did it in the first two services today. You know, I really believe that God wants to do something in our lives. Not one amen. Okay. Do you guys believe God wants to do something in your life? Does God love you? Did he die for you? Is he coming back for you? Well, he doesn't want to leave you hopelessly between the time he died for you and coming back for you. So, you know, he wants to do something for you now. Today. Present tense. So what I'm going to say is this. How many here say, you know, Pastor... I have never really had a real encounter with God. I've never had a real experience. Maybe you've grown up, you've been around it, maybe you've heard the right things. But you know, as I'm listening to this, I go, wow. You know, that, that opposite of being drunk, maybe I know that experience, but I've never known the experience of being full of the Spirit, full of joy. I want you to come real quick right now. Just join me here at the platform. Just come up here real quick. I'm going to pray with you. Come on. Come. You come tonight. God's going to do something in your life. You need to experience God. Number one, I said Christianity is experiential. I, I, my prayer for you is you're going to experience God tonight. Come on right up here, guys. Come up. There's going to be a lot of people coming. Just watch. Come on up here. Don't be ashamed. I'm for you. I'm going to believe God. You're going to have an encounter tonight with God. Anybody else? Yeah, come. Real quick. We're going to pray. You know what? It's, not, it's nothing wrong with saying I've not had an experience. We're going to ask God tonight for it. Okay? And if it doesn't happen this very moment, it's going to happen because when we pray this prayer, and I, I'm going to give you one more scripture. Listen, uh, let me just move it forward here and you're going to see it. Listen what God says. If we ask for the Holy Spirit, it says, even then you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more would your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? That's what we're going to ask for tonight. God is going to answer this prayer. Now, let me ask another question. You're here tonight. And you've had experiences. I've had lots of them. But you know what you're saying tonight? You know what my problem is? I haven't had an experience for a long time. My life is really dry. And you know what? I've noticed something. I've become ornery, cranky, complaining. I don't have a song in my heart. There's no joy in my life. You need to come right now. Quickly. Right out of your pew. Quick. Slip up here. We're going to pray for you tonight. You're going to have a new experience with God. You say, I need a new experience with God. Just come up, guys, a little closer. I won't bite you. Come on up. There's, there's a bunch coming now. I knew this was going to happen. That's why I had you come up front right off the bat. Amen. Praise God. We're going to just take a couple of minutes here. Pastor Mark, would you come and help me here? Daniel, would you come up here? Dragon, why don't you come up here? Yeah, that's good. Karen, Tom, come on, you guys. <clears throat> Who else here? You want to minister to people. You come right now. Come, quick. Quick, you come. Help me. We're going to lay hands on our brothers and sisters here. And we're going to pray tonight that God is going to move powerfully in their lives. That they're going to have a fresh experience with God. You know what? Isn't that great? Fresh. Brand new. Some of you, maybe the first time. Some of you, you've had it before, but it's not fresh in your life. And I'm going to pray for you, okay? 
And listen, this is what we're going to expect. We're going to pray. We're going to ask God. You may experience something tonight. You may not. But here's what I want you. Don't walk away discouraged. When I pray this prayer, and it's from your heart, you know what God's going to do? He's going to come, and he's gonna, you're going to experience him. He's going to come sometime this week. He's going to hear this cry, and he's going to just overwhelm me with his presence. It's going to be so awesome. You're going to be so excited. You're going to go, wow, God came. I, I had an experience with him. And he so impacted me. And all of a sudden, there's a, a joy in my heart and an excitement in my life. And all of a sudden, I want to learn about God. And I've got a new desire for God in my life. And I have a hunger for his word. I want to understand him. I want to get to know him better. That all comes from the work of the Spirit. Isn't that great? You know, just think about it. It's falling in love with somebody. I don't know if you've ever had that experience. What happens when you fall in love with somebody? What happens is you want to spend time with them. Isn't that true? How many of that was your experience? You just want to spend time with that person. I tell you, you're going to fall in love with Jesus, and you're going to want to spend time with him. You're going to enjoy it. You're going to say, I cannot get enough of spending time with Jesus. It's amazing. So, Lord, we just cry out to you tonight. I thank you for my brothers and my sisters, Lord. They're here tonight, Lord, and they're, you know what? We've all had struggles. We've all had feelings. We've all messed up. But, Lord, that's not what you're focusing on. You have already forgiven us of those things. But, Lord, tonight we know we need an encounter with you. We need to experience your Holy Spirit. And now I pray tonight, even as these have come, Lord, that you would fill them with your Holy Spirit right now, Lord, that you would touch their lives and you would fill them with the Holy Spirit, Father, in the name of Jesus, that you would fill them to overflowing in Jesus' name, that you would do such a powerful work in their life that they would experience your grace and your glory in their souls lord that it would bring about such a dynamic transformation that they will not be the same again that they will not just have one experience but they will have many experiences with you and that they will continue to grow in their relationship with you we thank you for that in jesus name amen amen god bless you God is going to hear this prayer from the innermost part of your being. The fact that you said, yes, I want this. God says, I want it more. You said, I want it. God says, no, but I wanted it more. God wants it more than you want it. Isn't that great? Why? Because he's a great lover. He created you. He loves you. He's reaching out to you tonight. He's drawing you to himself. Do you think he's going to squander this opportunity? Of course not. He's going to invade your life in a very powerful way. Hallelujah. God bless you tonight. God be with you as you leave. May his spirit fill your heart. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you.